First Timothy chapter 3, let's begin in verse 14. These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. Chapter 4. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you that we have it to turn to. We thank you that it is so preeminent in our lives. And we want, Lord, to be students of your word. You said that if we continue in your word, we're your disciples indeed. And when there's nothing greater in this world that we could turn to for wisdom and knowledge and to also be further conformed into the image of your Son, we want to be more like Jesus. We pray that you would use this passage for that purpose. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher this morning. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to make application of these things in our hearts so that we can obey them, not just hearing the word only. We want to please you by our lives. We want to live lives that are a blessing to you in response to how you've demonstrated your love for us. And we commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we've been studying in this great book of uh, 1 Timothy. Paul has been uh, writing to his young protege, Timothy, uh, and in He's dispatched Timothy to this city of Ephesus. It's a great city. And he's in this city, and he has to do some difficult things. The Apostle Paul has tasked him to do some things that are difficult because they involve uh, having the approval of man be at risk in Timothy's eyes. How the approval of man would come his way, and the fear of man is a snare. We're told in Proverbs. And Timothy is a little bit timid, and he's a little bit shy, and, and yet he's still been called to do this very difficult task of putting this church, this church in Ephesus, in order and to do very specific things. And so Paul has told him to remain there. He's told them to obey his calling. He's told them some very hard things. And calling our callings can demand from us some very difficult things. True for all of us, not just leaders. As a mom, as a dad, as a father, wherever God has placed us in this world, we're called to those things, and they are very difficult at times, and God knows it, and leaders are no exception. And it's very difficult to lead well because it requires you to say some things and do things that people don't always agree with or like, but you have to do them, nevertheless, because you have to love God more than you love the approval of man. And so Timothy's grappling with this very issue. So Paul's told him some things. He's told him to, to lead uh, by stopping this worthless 
uh, disputes and, and arguments about genealogies and so forth concerning the law of Moses. He's told him to lead by teaching biblical doctrine and to contradict those who uh, teach otherwise. He's told them to pray for all those that are in authority, that that's how we express our, our support as citizens, by praying for those that are in authority. God tells us that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. And so God is sovereign over those even that don't know him. So we're supposed to pray for them. He's also told us that men and women have proper roles in the church, that there's an order that God has set things uh, up in. And so we have to obey those roles. And so maybe some of those roles, those people that he would be telling to be in those certain roles wouldn't like those roles. He still had to do it. He still had to obey what the word of God said to him. And lastly, we've seen him lay out the qualifications for elders and deacons in the church. He hasn't told Timothy to produce those character traits in those people. But he's told him to watch for those character traits that the Holy Spirit alone produces in a life so that when he sees that God is at work in those people in that way and he's produced that godly character coupled with the calling that he has on their lives that Timothy is supposed to to verify those things and to then place them in an area of influence within the body of Christ and so he's laid all these things out today as we finish up chapter three and begin chapter four Paul's going to exhort Timothy to value the word of God even more than he already does. To pre- he's going to challenge him and he's going to press him. He's going to stretch him to value the word of God more and also tell him that there will be those that don't value the word of God. So it doesn't catch Timothy by surprise. He wants him to increasingly have a love for God's word to teach the people of God God's word, but also to not be stumbled when people leave the word of God and depart from the faith. And so Paul kind of is going to give Timothy a, a heads up that it's, it's not going to always be uh, how you think it may be, that it may change. Over time, people will fall away and to not be stumbled by that. That's important for all of us to know. We shouldn't be stumbled when people fall away from the faith or leave the word of God or start denying the things of uh, the you know, biblical theology and so forth. That shouldn't stumble us. God's called each of us to value his word, those of us that know him in, his, in, in this room. And he wants those that don't know him to know him so that they can value his word. And so he's called each of us to value the word of God and not be stumbled by those that leave it. God has a lot to say about his word. The writer of Psalm 119 says this in verses 9 through 16. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I have declared all the judgments of your mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. And that that whole psalm is filled with adoration and love for God's word. I'd recommend you read that uh, regularly. But also we're told in Jeremiah chapter 15 verse 16 uh, this. Your words were found and I ate them. (laughs) 
And your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. What an incredible zeal and love for God's word. He's actually feeding upon God's word and saying, I ate them, I ate your words, I devoured your word. And we're told throughout all of Scripture to venerate or to to respect and to love the word of God and to hold fast to it. Jesus said, man does not live on bread alone, but by every word which proceeds out of the mouth of God. Very important. We can't survive spiritually if we're not regularly feeding upon the word of God. You don't eat just on Sundays, do you? I know you eat on Sundays. Some of you have really good lunches on Sundays. It's like a celebration. And some of you I've seen, you can eat. You're like me. You do it well. You excel. But we don't just eat on Sundays, do we? We eat the rest of the days, too. We're, we're very uh, hungry for physical food throughout, throughout the week. And what Jesus is saying to us is that man does not live on bread alone. That that can't be the only way that we're fed. We have to be fed by the word of God spiritually. And if we don't feed ourselves spiritually, then we're not going to grow spiritually. And thus, we're not going to fulfill God's plan for each one of our lives. It may sound oversimplistic. But we, are, we need to have the basics reinforced in our lives. We can go for weeks and months and years and forget these very basic things. Jesus said to pray that prayer and to have it as a model. To, and part of that is give us this day our daily bread. He's saying give us this day our daily bread. This is a daily thing, a daily thing that we're asking from the Lord. Physical food but also spiritual food. He knows that we need those things. And so he's called us to that. And there's so many problems that we would be spared of if we would put his word first in our lives and not think that we're smarter than him and not think that we know a better way to live than to live for him. So living a life of obedience to his word is the best life. It's the privileged life. Do we forget that? I forget it. That living an obedient life to God is a privilege. Repentance is a privilege. To be able to live obediently to God by his grace is a privilege. And God wants us to reflect who he is in this world. He wants our works to to do our works before men that we would glorify our heavenly father. And so that all would see that we know him and he knows us. But others are going to leave it. And that shouldn't surprise us. Shouldn't catch us off guard. Even those that are in our own area of influence that we may not think may leave it, they may leave it. And God's called us to stand with them and to pray for them and to lift them up. And, but it shouldn't stumble us. But there is a deceptive influence that occurs when someone compromises. And we can think that we're so strong and we're impenetrable regarding our walk and that we can be influenced by people and it not affect our walk, but it does affect our walk. We have to be very careful uh, who we allow ourselves to be around on a regular basis. I know that we need to be salt and light. We need to influence the world. But if we're starting to be influenced by the world and the people that we're around, then we need to take a step back and we need to let the Lord mature us or at least have us be spiritually filled up at the time, at the moment that we're around people that are struggling so that we're not influenced negatively. But this whole thing's going to be about those that are going to be leaving the faith, and leaving the word of God. And God wants to inoculate and protect us from that so that we we don't fall prey to that. And what does that is 
feeding upon his word. To get, some of you are coming from backgrounds that you've never really been taught the scriptures and you've never really grown and been grounded in the word of God. And that's starting to happen. You can see it. We can see it. And most importantly, God is watching and it blesses him. And he knows that that is working in your life for many reasons, but one of which is to protect you from deception. Deception is so powerful. And we have to be careful and guard our minds against that. Now notice as Paul begins in verses 14 and 15, he expresses his desire to join Timothy. He says, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is, in, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Now we went over verse 15. We've referenced it many times as we've gone through 1 Timothy verse by verse. It's the theme of the book. It's really the reason why Paul's writing. We keep mentioning it because it's important for us to know he wasn't just, even though he was close personally to Timothy, he wasn't just writing a personal letter. He was writing an official letter that that lays out how Timothy should lead the church. And he begins the, the whole book with Paul an apostle. He's listing his office and his mantle of leadership to remind Timothy it's not just a personal friend that's writing you. It's, a, it's an apostle of Jesus Christ that's writing you. And he's laying all these things out, letting Timothy know it's not up to Timothy to make the church whatever he wants it to be. That there's prescribed uh, principles in Scripture that lays out what the church is supposed to be about. That the pastor doesn't have the, the quote, luxury of making it whatever he wants, to be, what wants it to be according to his preference. So we've already covered that. But then he says, he identifies who we are because we're the church. And the word church means the called out ones. The church is not a building. He does talk about the house of God there in the middle of verse 15. But that's really referenced because the church, the called out ones come together. And wherever the called out ones come together, that's the house of God at that time. This is a school the rest of the the time. But on Sundays, it's set apart. They don't even know it here at the school. That this building's been set apart for a holy use. But because we're here, because we're holy, because the, the, the righteousness of God has been put to our account through Christ, this place, when we come together, it's holy. It's been set apart. And so that he says, we are the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And so he calls it something that's kind of different. We're not used to referring to ourselves as the pillar or ground of the truth. And I think that Paul is calling upon imagery with which every Ephesian would be familiar because they were in Ephesus and there in Ephesus was the famous temple of Diana or Artemis. Diana is the Roman name, Artemis is the Greek name. And it was one of the seven wonders of the world. And she was, you know, a god of fertility and it was, it was a, a horrific place for them to serve that false god and to express themselves through sexual activity there in that temple. But this temple was, and I've gone over it before, but I want to remind us how amazing this temple was because it gives us a little picture potentially of what Paul's trying to get across. This temple took 220 years to build. That's how intense this building was. It was over a football field in length and half of a football field wide. And it had 127 pillars to it, each of which were, were uh, over 56 feet 
high. Now, I don't know how tall the ceiling is. It's probably 40 feet, maybe 50. But you can imagine how big those pillars would be. 127 of those pillars surrounding it, holding up the uh, roof of that temple. So you could see these pillars from miles away. Miles and miles and miles away, you could see this temple of Diana. And so they're very familiar with it. And so he says, you are the pillar. Now, he also says you're the ground of the truth. And so not only are we supposed to, we're seen as pillars in the sense we are holding, he's relating this to the, the truth, the word of God. So a pillar holds something up, right? It's, it is beautiful and it is supportive, but it does hold something up and it supports Something, And that's what we are called to, to do related to the word of God. The word, the church is called to hold up the word of God, but also be the ground. Now, we're also told that, that, that Jesus is the, the foundation for the church. So how can we be the foundation upon which the word of God is built? Because he's talking about in a practical sense, I believe, with people. We are a place. We're called to be not just individually, but corporately. We're supposed to be a place of a foundation of the word of God so that people can come and they can have their lives transformed by the word of God. And so I believe Paul is calling uh, us to realize that we have a dual nature in our calling here. We are the pillar. Notice he says the pillar. He does, he's not saying there's lots of pillars. We constitute one pillar as the called out ones, as the church. And we are lifting up the word of God. We are holding up the word of God. In other words, we're proclaiming to the world the word of God is the standard. And if the church doesn't stand up and say that the word of God is the standard, there is no other pillar. He says it. There's the pillar, the singular pillar. There is no other standard. If we don't stand up for the word of God and lift it up, hold it up as it, it being the amazing thing that it is, that it will outlive the heavens and the earth, and it is God's word, then who else is going to do it? And if we're not the ground that someone could come to and have the word of God be exposed to them, then who else is going to, to do it? And so that's what he's called the church to be, to hold fast, to not compromise it, no matter what the world says. Pro professing Christianity is, is casting more and more doubt on the word of God all the time. There are cardinal doctrines to the Christian faith that we, as the church generally, would never, ever doubt. That pastors and leaders are coming against. They're doubting the resurrection. They're doubting the Trinity. They're doubting that Jesus is the only way to heaven. They're doubting eternal uh, separation from God. They're, they're doubting all kinds of things that the Word of God teaches. They're doubting, they're trying to redefine marriage, and God doesn't redefine it. We're not free to redefine it. There's all kinds of ways that it's being compromised. And God's called us to hold that word of God up, to be that pillar, and to be the ground that people can come to, the foundational ground that people can come to and be exposed to God's word. We've only been around for a little over four years here. And we're already getting a reputation, a good reputation, for being serious about the word of God. And that blesses me, but way infinitely more important is that it blesses the Lord. Because he said, if you continue in my word, you're my disciples indeed. And to have a reputation for being true to the word of God and being serious about the teaching of the word of God, knowing the result of it in our lives, and knowing the early church did this, is a huge blessing. And God will honor that in our lives. He's laying a foundation here 
This has been spoken of in, by prophecy regarding our church, that he is laying a foundation here, and someone has said that the, the greater and bigger the foundation it is needed for a greater building. And I don't know what that means. I mean, I'm not even thinking of numbers or anything like that. I'm talking about spiritual influence in this world. This church can affect the rest of the world in an amazing way, way beyond anything we could ever dream of because we're dealing with God who is, who the word of God is not chained, as Paul said. And there's no limitations to the word of God. If we will walk true before him, and we will function in the way he's called us to function as the church, as Acts 2.42 and Ephesians 4 lay out for us. So uh, it's a huge blessing to the Lord's heart if we continue in his word and hold it up. Now in verse 16, Paul writes six lines of poetry here. It's really neat. He says um, in these verses that there's some incredible doctrine that we need to heed. And he uses you know, these endings that repeat and these prepositions that repeat and so forth. And many people believe that these verses here uh, constitute an, an early church hymn that was very easy for them to remember and to repeat and that they would sing it. I wish we knew the tune. That would have been great. Too bad there wasn't MP3 players or recorders back then. We can hear how they used to sing this kind of poem uh, to music. But it makes the, the, this truth memorable. And he's talking about in these verses the truth uh, becoming flesh. He's been talking about the Word of God. And now he's going to be talking about the Word of God becoming flesh. Because that's what uh, we're told in Scripture, that Jesus came to this world, and it wasn't by accident that he came to this earth, and, and that these truths are very cardinal to our faith. These are the very doctrines that the false teachers were going to deny. And so as he's progressing through this, he's talking about the supremacy of the word of God in the lives of those that constitute his family, his church, his body. He brings them to the cardinal beliefs or the most foundational beliefs regarding our Christian faith. And that is Christ's life and his incarnation and his death, burial, and resurrection. So he says in verse 16, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. It has a nice rhythm to it, doesn't it? It's like these couplets there. And, and it's, it, you can see how, and I'm, I, don't, I haven't studied it in depth in the Greek, but I bet you in the Greek it's probably even more memorable. But he says in the beginning of verse 16, and without controversy. I love this. This is without dispute. <laughs> what he's about to say is without controversy, it's evident for all to see. And if people don't see it, it's because it's a problem on their end of things. One preacher said this about how it's not a controversy. He said, when he says without controversy, I suppose he means that there ought to be no controversy about these facts. Though controversies have arisen concerning them and always will, since the most self-evident truth will always find self-evident fools to contradict it. <laughs> like, wow, that's clarity. Tell me how you really feel. Uh, but, you know, it's self-evident that he came in the flesh and all these things that he accomplished. And it begins with this, great is the mystery of godliness. Godliness. Up to this point, godliness hasn't appeared in an epistle, the word Godliness. But in 1 Timothy, it appears eight or nine times. And it's going to appear once in 2 Timothy, once in Titus, and then four times in 2 Peter. 
It hasn't occurred up until now. And he's saying there's a mystery. And we know that a biblical definition of mystery is that which was hidden in the Old Testament that has been revealed in the New Testament and that those who have the Holy Spirit get access to this new revelation. And that's why revelation is a privilege. But he's saying this has been hidden, but now this amazing uh, uh, you know, truth that's without controversy, without dispute, has, has made itself known to us. And he says, this is what it is, the incarnation. That God was manifested in the flesh for everyone to see. Elsewhere, the disciples say, we handled and touched. We saw the majesty of him. They, they handle him physically. And so he says, God was manifested in the flesh. That's the incarnation. And if he, uh, Philippians chapter 2, you can put it in your margin here, is where the main scripture that talks about that he emptied himself and became a servant, humbling himself. He came to this world. He emptied himself in the sense that he came and condescended to this world and he remained God the whole time, but he added an additional nature. So then he had a dual nature from, from that point on. That's the incarnation. So Philip was told by Jesus, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That there's different, there are different persons within the Godhead, but he represents, he's the exact manifestation of his person. He's, he's, the, God, he's the fulfillment of the Godhead bodily in, 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 in personal form. And, you know, we get so used to hearing that, but think about that. That God came in human form and allowed sinful man to mistreat him, lived the perfect life that we could never live, never sinned, and then died in our place so that we could receive salvation as a free gift. Nobody could invent a better story than that. Can you think of better news? Can you think of something that would be better? We would never imagine that God himself would come and do that. We would never even make up such a thing. It's, a, it's absolutely breathtaking. And so he's saying that's what, that's what should be about what you stand for regarding the word of God. Being a pillar and being the ground is the manifestation of God in the flesh, in, the, in, in Jesus John chapter 1 verse 14 said the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's another way of saying God was manifested in the flesh. The false teachers denied this. There was a popular teaching that was gaining momentum at this point and eventually would become full-blown Gnosticism, believing that anything physical is evil and that they could just, you know, be really strict with their physical uh, you know, bodies and so forth, and that's kind of where these prohibitions come that we're going to cover in a minute, that they know the flesh is evil, but because they believe the flesh is evil, they'd never believe that God himself would come in human flesh because God would never be evil, and it was a twisted way to bring forth false doctrine, and so they denied that. Later, John the apostle would say in 1 John that anyone who doesn't believe that Christ came in the flesh is of Antichrist, so that the doctrine of the Antichrist is denying that Jesus came in the flesh uh, physically and, and that was God in human flesh. So that's a beautiful little part of this poem. Now he says justified in the spirit and someone has said that he wasn't justified in the spirit in the sense that he was once sinful but made righteous but in the sense that he was declared to be by the spirit what he always was, completely justified before the Father. If you think about that, that's really what happened through Jesus' public ministry. When he was baptized, what did the Father say? This is my son in whom I am well pleased. And then his life was 
was ratified or validated by the Father throughout, throughout the whole, his whole ministry on the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, Peter giving advice to God. Big, big, big issues with that. You know, you're going to get into problems when you're giving advice to God. We should build three tabernacles here. And, and then it takes God the Father to interrupt that bad idea. This is my son. Hear him. In other words, he's not on an equal plane with these other two prophets. He's, he's totally separate. Don't put him on an equal plane. Listen to him. He validated the Lord Jesus. The Father did. But the biggest amen to Jesus was the resurrection. That was the Father's amen to the cross. And so he was raised from the dead by the Father, by all three of them actually, in scriptures we're told, each one of the Godhead raised Jesus from the dead. But there was the Father that raised him from the dead and validated who he said he was and it validated everything that he said. But all of that happened by the Spirit of God. And so he was justified. Justified means acquitted. And so sinful man convicted the Lord Jesus. He never did anything wrong. But the, 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 the cross and the resurrection demonstrate that he was always what he had always had been. He, in other words, it just revealed that he hadn't changed, that he was the, the chosen Messiah, blessed by the Father. And so he includes that in this. But he also includes seen by angels. Now, we know that the angels were there at his birth. We know that angels were there at his resurrection. But he was also attended to by angels after he was tempted for 40 days. They attended his physical needs. He said uh, to Nathaniel, you know, you'll see angels descending and ascending upon the Son of Man. Angels were very much a part of Jesus' ministry. He said, I could call 12 legions of angels at any moment and, and, and deliver me from, this, uh, from the cross if he wanted to. So angels long to look into the gospel. We're told that in Peter. And, and so they witnessed this. And remember, this was, this, Jesus was slain before the foundation of the world. We don't know how long before the creation of the world the Father made known that plan to redeem mankind that hadn't even been created yet. The angels may have heard all about this, but were waiting to see God manifested in the flesh because they hadn't seen that yet. And for sure they knew it uh, when uh, the Lord prophesied about the Messiah for the first time in Genesis chapter 3 after the fall of man okay, there's, a, there's going to be a solution. There's going to be a Messiah. And they were waiting for that to happen. And so they were very re, uh, worshipful and rejoicing when they announced to the shepherds about Jesus coming and the Son of Man coming. He said, preached among the Gentiles. He was proclaimed to be the Messiah there in his public ministry, both to Jews and Gentiles. His primary focus was Jews. The Lord Jesus' primary focus was the Jews. He knew that uh, the, the disciples would reach the Gentiles, but he was proclaimed among the Gentiles. Believed on in the world. There, there was fruit. People believed. There were followers that followed him. He seemed to narrow that, those numbers down by saying harder and harder things to test their hearts. He wasn't in the numbers for sure. He got them all the way down at one point to his 12 disciples you know, and they, are you gonna, are you gonna leave too? You know, so he he had people believe, had people follow. That was his ministry, and then it culminated in his his uh, reception up into heaven by the ascension. And so he says, "This is that which has been made known that was previously hidden, and and that is in part what you should stand for regarding being the pillar and being the ground for the truth." There. 
So now he continues in chapter 4, in verse 1, he says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceitful, deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. I want you to know that when it says the Spirit expressly says, the tense there is continuous action. So Paul is saying the Spirit continuously says that in latter times some will depart from the faith and giving heed to these Things. And we don't know if that was a prophecy that kept coming forth from the leadership. He kept hearing it over and over again. Or it was just something that the Spirit impressed upon their hearts over and over again that these things were going to happen. He does say latter times. Um, I don't know that it's synonymous with last days. Uh, the, this would happen throughout the, the church age in an increasing way. But what Paul's trying to get across to Timothy is that in your future, at least... These things are going to increase, and this is going to happen, and you shouldn't be surprised by it. But it's happened all through history, and we know that the last days people will uh, fall away and, and, and in a greater and greater way. He's going to cover that in Second Timothy when we get there, Lord willing, um, in a few weeks. So he says, depart, which means to purposely leave. This is apostasy. This is turning away from the faith. This is denying the faith and leaving the faith. And how do they do it? They deny the word of God. That's the first step. You deny the word of God. When you start denying scripture, when you start thinking that you're smarter than the word of God and that you are the standard that's going to judge the word of God. See, the, ju- the word of God judges us. James tells us that, um, or Hebrews rather, that it, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And it judges the thoughts and intents of the heart. The word of God judges us. We don't judge the word of God. And so when people think they're smarter than, than, than the Word of God, that's the first step of going into that uh, apostasy there. Because it may just be a mental exercise of denying doctrines in the beginning, but it doesn't stop there. It, there has, there's an end to it. It leads somewhere, and that where it leads isn't good. He says giving heed. That's the idea of purposely giving heed. Preferring is a better word. Preferring these doctrines. And who is espousing these doctrines? Ultimately, deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. It's easy to kind of divorce in our minds false teaching from the enemy. Because we see with our eyes that it's people that that teach these things. We don't see the, the demons up behind a pulpit somewhere. And, you know, and teaching and getting on, you know, Christian television um, and saying, hi, I'm, a, I'm, I'm Satan I'm a, or I'm a demon and I'm, I'm going to teach you air right now. Are you ready? Call the number on your screen if you like prayer, you know, whatever they would do. Uh, but, I mean, they don't do that. It's, it's very deceptive. And if you were Satan, you'd do it the same way, wouldn't you? You'd find someone that's off and that you would influence them and that you would bring forth these ideas in their minds and that they would espouse these false teachings, but the devil loves to quote scripture. He's, he did that in Jesus' public ministry. But the problem is the enemy misapplies scripture and he quotes it out of context. And he uses it uh, in, a, in a false way. He'll take scripture and he will apply it falsely in, a, in some context that we're in. And we have to realize what's the proper context. Another reason why to be grounded in the scriptures. To know, no, that's not the proper, you know, Jesus uh, said, go and do likewise. And then we can take that with, you know, Judas hung himself and put those two together. I mean, that's misapplying the scripture. But Satan wouldn't be above uh, saying something like that to us. But there's so much more more subtle things than, than that kind of thing. But he does. He loves to quote scripture. Sometimes just because people quote scripture, people go, oh, yeah, that's great. That's great. I love that. Amen to that. I have no idea what it's about, no idea the context. 
And, and so it's important for us, just because someone quotes scripture, or just because someone gets behind a lectern or writes a book, it doesn't mean that it's true. We have to be careful, even if it appears that they have a very fruitful ministry. You know, Paul tells, tells us in other places that the, the, the workers of, of Satan masquerade themselves as workers of righteousness because Satan masquerades himself as an angel of light. And so he says it's no wonder that his servants masquerade themselves. We have to be very, very careful. We have to test everything by the scriptures. Acts chapter 17, the Bereans tested what Paul said by the scriptures to see if what he was saying is so. Do you ever wonder why I say the word notice or look with me or verse whatever? I want you to see it for yourself. It's a protection for me. It's a protection for you so you can see where I'm getting what I'm, get, what I'm saying because, it, because I have no authority apart from it being in Scripture. Speaking of using the word notice, look in verse 2 that he tells us how these people can teach false doctrine. He says, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Now, it's not talking about the ironing clothes iron. I know some of you men have never even seen one of those, some of you. Um, you know, uh, but there is a, such a thing called a clothes iron, and um, you can use it sometimes. It's not just for your wives to use. You can actually, you know, there's all kinds of ways that we can serve in the house, and that's one of them for sure. Cleaning bathrooms is something that your wives can appreciate too. See, wives, I'm on your side here. I'm on your side. Um, I'm helping you out here. But it's not talking about a clothes iron. I better get out of here quick. Um, he's talking about what was common in that day was they would brand people. They would brand slaves. They would brand criminals. Or, and also they would cauterize wounds with very hot irons. And they would think that it would purify the uh, infection that was in there. And it would end up doing is causing more harm many times and killing the nerve endings there. So that's kind of the, 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 what they were familiar with. And, and what Paul is saying is because they purposely teach these things, it's not by accident. That's why their conscience is seared. At first, their conscience wasn't seared. And their conscience was saying, tell, telling them, it's wrong what you're doing. But they kept crossing that line over and over again. And eventually, their conscience was inoperable, or at least greatly diminished in its uh, effectiveness. And so he's saying, that's how they're able to do this. They're hypocrites, first of all. A hypocrite is an actor. They used to call their Greek actors hypocrites. They were actors, so it's putting on a mask and pretending like you're someone that you're not. That tells us there's volition here, that they, knew, they know what they're doing. They're acting one way, even though inwardly there's something else. They're acting like they're uh, uh, you know, a good influence over people. But they know they're not, and they've done that so many times that it makes their conscience inoperable. That's what he's saying. That's how they can actually pull it off. And so false teachers knowingly teach these things, many of them. Some of them are just self-deceived, and they're just deceived themselves. But many of them know what they're doing, and so Paul is warning Timothy, be careful. Now, all of us need to be careful of going against our conscience. We don't have to be engaged in false teaching to be uh, at risk of searing our conscience. We can cross that line over and over, and we start hardening our hearts in Hebrews chapter 3, we're told that, see to it, brethren, that none of you are found with a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. When we sin and we don't repent, over time that can harden and deceive our hearts till we can get to the point where we deny the Lord. And, we, and we're warned against that in Hebrews. And so we have to be very careful. It's a good exhortation for us to not violate that conscience. 
Conscience makes no sense in light of evolution. No sense. The survival of the fittest mantra and philosophy doesn't make any sense regarding having someone have a conscience, especially with a conscience that does what's right even at my own expense because that goes against the survival of the fittest. So it's from God. And if it's from God, we need to be thankful and realize that it's, that it's a precious thing from him that he's given us. And so we should value it. Now, Paul gives some examples of doctrines of demons in verse 3. Look with me there. He says, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. That's it? These are the examples of doctrines of demons? I mean, where's the worshiping Satan doctrine? Or where's the, you know, false, serving false gods or, or engage in whatever sin you want? Those, to me, would be doctrines of demons. And for sure they are because there are people that teach those things. But what's unique about these particular things is, for, first of all, those are the false doctrines that they were dealing with in Ephesus. And the Gnostics, the Gnostics were teaching that it was wrong to marry, that, you need, that because the sinful nature, I mean, the flesh is sinful, that to engage in anything physical related to pleasure, including being married and being intimate with your spouse, is wrong and wicked. And so they forbid that. But also they forbade uh, eating certain foods because those are pleasurable. Now this, you may seem like, no, that's not that big of a deal. Well, for one, it, it lifts us up in pride because look at me, I'm so spiritual. I'm not marry, you know, marrying someone and I'm not eating certain foods. Because it's not talking about uh, health reasons. For, now that's true, we can you know, not partake in certain things because of health reasons. But this is talking a spiritual standing with God is, is somehow increased if I'm not eating certain foods. But that's not true at all. Or I'm spiritually, I'm more mature spiritually if I'm not married. Now we see Roman Catholic priests not being, not being married. They're forbidding to marry. Peter had a mother-in-law. <laughs> he was supposedly the first pope. He had a, a, a mother-in-law that Jesus healed of a fever. That's ridiculous. Monks today go of these high mountains and they're supposedly more spiritual because they're not married and all that. Goes against scripture. Those are doctrines of demons. Right here, the scripture says that. I didn't say it. And so, but it gets to the core of the first lie that came in the garden, that God's holding out on you. There's something that you need that God doesn't want you to have. And by obeying these things, you're missing out on something that God doesn't want you to be engaged in these things. And, and, and uh, he's want, you know, his judgment isn't right. These things that he's provided in spouses and certain types of food, he's holding out on you by by allowing these things to be in your midst. You should stay away from these things. And that's the core of it. So that was a total lie and doctrine of demons. Now he says in verse 4, for every creature of God is good. And nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. So here's the final answer regarding a spiritual advantage or not regarding eating or not eating certain foods. There's no spiritual advantage. Everything's supposed to be received. Everything's from God. Every good and perfect gift is from above, we're told. And everything that God has provided, we're supposed to enjoy. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 29, God said, See, I've given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed to you, it is given for food. And later in Genesis 9, in verse 3, he says, Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. And so he says, 
These are what I've, that's what I've provided for you. And that's, I believe, what it means when it says it is sanctified by the word of God. God has, has commissioned these foods for us to enjoy. And so, uh, but also prayer is important because that's giving the thanks and expressing thanks to God for our food that we get. And that's the biblical basis for acknowledging God before you eat a meal and thanking him for it. He says it's set apart in a certain way because of prayer. So the, the whole idea that God has for these things is thanksgiving. So of course Satan's going to get in there with his doctrines and his teachings that say don't do those things because if man doesn't do those things in that, in that context, then they're, they're not being thankful to him. And it's something that he's given to them and given to us to bless us, but they're not partaking in it because they've had false teaching. So very important for us to see that. I close with this. The Word of God is, is critically important for our spiritual vitality. And it's supposed to remain the standard of our lives at all costs. And we're not supposed to just feed on the Word of God on Sundays. And I'm not interested in putting a, you know, a legalistic thing on you or anything like that. But Jesus said, man shall not live on bread alone. And we need to live spiritually every day, just like we need to live physically every day. And so he knows that that time needs to be given to us because we're not going to be the pillar and the ground for the truth, as he said, unless individually we're doing that and walking with the Lord. Of course, we need to do that corporately, and we'll continue to do that. But it's going to happen only if we're collectively and individually doing it and feeding upon his word and having that be the standard. Some of you are growing so much, and I'm growing too, in the word of God as we study it together. Keep doing that. God sees it. He's blessed by that. He knows it's working in your life. And keep going to him and being fed uh, his word and in every way. But don't just be learning it and be communing with him through it. Obey it. Whatever he says to you, I want you to do something through the word of God. Be quick to obey it. By his grace and by his power for sure. But be quick to obey. The people that I know who are very mature in the Lord, when God says something to them, and they're listening continuously, when he says something to them, they heed it, and they're quick to obey. There's the time that they hear something and obey it is getting shorter and shorter instead of getting further and further and further. Because we can drift and not even realize what's happening. And so God's very gracious to come in, remind us, and exhort us, and encourage us to, to value his word as he does. You know it says in Psalm 138 that he... He exalts his name, or his word rather, even above his own name in Psalm 138. I challenge you to find anything else in the world or in his word where he says he exalts above his own name. Because his name is everything who he is, his character. It's not just some title that he has. Some combination of letters in a certain sequence that describe you know, his, his, his essence. It's who he is in his character. And he says, I magnify my word above all my name in Psalm 138. So very important for us to take heed to that. He wants all of that to be used in this world. He doesn't just make us mature so that we can live a happy, blessed life, although the blessed life is a result of it. But he uses that maturity so that we can be salt and light in this world. And he died to make it possible. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for how amazing it is. We are continuously amazed on how your word is so proficient for everything that we need and beyond what we need. So I pray, Lord, that everyone that calls their home Calvary Chapel Manteca, that's represented in this room and those that are in the children's ministry and those that aren't here today, 
We pray, Lord, that you would continue to work in our lives so that we put your word at the forefront of everything. To the, to, the, to the neglect of all of what this world is saying that contradicts it. May at least this fellowship be found to be honoring and true to your word to the very end and not compromise it. We know, Jesus, you see it. We know that you see our church. We know that you have opinions about it and thoughts about it. You don't miss anything. We want to be faithful to you. Make us to not only be uh, students of your word, but to be those that are found obedient to it. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's